God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created you, knitting you together in your mother's womb. Every cell, every bone, all working together, all for a purpose. Your brain is at work right now, sending information at over 200 miles per hour. Your heart is beating over 100,000 times a day, forcing blood through thousands of miles of blood vessels. Your eye can detect over 10 million separate colors. You have been formed, woven, created to bear the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, for you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. The many moral issues uh, that we are dealing with today, gender identity, sexual ethics, uh, abortion, medical assistance in death, those issues are connected to our bodies. And for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at what God says about our bodies. And just a few introductory comments as we begin. Uh, first, uh, as we talk about people in our bodies, we as followers of Jesus do not attack one single person. We love people more than anybody else, but we attack false ideologies. We attack false worldviews. And if you're new to Woodside, uh, we believe here not only that the Christian worldview is, makes the most sense of our world, but the Bible, the Christian worldview from which we get, we get it from the Bible, the Bible points us to a person, his name is Jesus. And if Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day and is alive and is coming again uh, and is the truth, then everything needs to align with what he says. That he is the ultimate reality. And so that's the position we take at Woodside. We're followers of Jesus who believe the Bible is the word of God. So we're not attacking anybody, but we're attacking false ideologies. And secondly, as a follower of Jesus, you are to lead with grace and speak truth. As you discuss moral issues, as you interact with people, uh, you lead with grace and you speak truth. That's how Jesus did it. That's who Jesus is. He is full of grace and truth. And you'll see it as he interacts with people. In particular, we think of the woman caught in adultery and those uh, religious leaders trying to stone her, asking Jesus, uh, what do we do with her? As the scene plays out, Jesus is left with this woman, and he says to her, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she responds, no one. And then he says, neither do I. He is a God of grace. But then he adds, go and sin no more. He's a God of truth. That you were not meant to live that way. There's a better way for you to live. And today we find churches that are, they kind of lean into the grace and Jesus loves everybody, but they deny people the truth. And then there are churches that lean into the truth, and we just speak the truth and tell it like it is, and they deny people grace. Grace without truth. Grace is, al grace is always truthful, and truth is always gracious. So as we begin, 
Again, we are attacking false ideologies and not people. So today, as we begin, underneath the moral issues of the day is the anthropological issue. Who are we? Who are you? Because who you are shapes how you see life, how you live life, and how you see your body. And there has been a significant shift in how we answer that question, who are we? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Who are we? What are we doing with these bodies? Secondly, we're going to touch on the issue of abortion. And if you've um, been affected by abortion or abortions, if you're a woman or a man, I'm going to ask you to please hang in with me and continue to listen. And I'm sure there are a number of triggers, but there's good news in Jesus Christ. He's the answer to everything. So we're looking at the anthropological question. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? Because that affects how we see life and how we see our bodies. So if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at a number of passages today. Genesis chapter 2. And as you're turning there, if you're new to the Bible, God reveals to you that he's the creator of your life, the sustainer of your life, and he wants to be the redeemer of your life. So Genesis chapter 2. And who are we? Verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Notice there, there is the material and the immaterial. Now, we as Christians discuss, you know, um, how do we take this passage? In fact, how do we take Genesis 1 and 2 as Christians, and how do we interpret it? There's some different interpretations, but we all agree that God created us, and he created us uh, material and immaterial. Notice it doesn't say God made a soul called Adam, and he looked for some place to store Adam, like kind of like a Tupperware container. Oh, what am I going to do with Adam? God made flesh from the dust. He made flesh, and then he animated that flesh by breathing life into it. So you and I have a body and a soul, material and immaterial, that you are united, soul and body. So as, as being created by God with our bodies, we don't say that our bodies are nothing, and we don't say our bodies are everything. They're part of who we are, body and soul. Now, that's important because in our culture, the question as to who we are, it's shifted. If I hold to a secular worldview where God is removed from the equation, then my body is simply accidental. Bunch of forces, I have a body. And if I work that logic out, my body is incidental. And that's what we see today. That our bodies are not significant to who we really are. The real you is the immaterial. The person on the inside. Your body is not who you are. It's an accident. You uh, can do what you want with your body. Your body's like a canvas that you can paint who you are. It's an expression. So if you want to change your body, you want to do whatever you want, do it with your body. And then as you work out that logic as well, the body is dispensable. 2,000 years ago, the body was seen as evil. 
Today, it's seen as less than. If we're made in the image of God, we have a high view of the body. And not simply the body. We are created by God, but we're created by God in His image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read these words. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God made us in his image. Uh, theologians call this the imago Dei, that you are distinct from the rest of creation because you've been created in the image of God. There's something fundamentally different about you than the rest of his creation. Fish, birds, livestock, wild animals that call, crawl along the ground. You are more important to God because you're made in his image. You have a moral nature, a spiritual nature. You can connect with God in the way that the rest of creation can't. Okay, so whatever your dog's name is, Rover, if you got a cat, love the cat, love the dog, but you're more important to God than any cat or any dog or anything else in creation. We take care of creation, but the Imago Dei, we're special and our bodies matter to God. Our souls matter to God. The Imago Dei, the implications of that, how it shapes that, is that we see every person from conception to natural death as having immeasurable worth and an inherent dignity. And that includes preborn children, it includes people with disabilities or special needs, it includes people uh, with mental challenges, it includes the elderly. It includes every single person that is marginalized by society. Because we're made in the image of God, everyone, every human being matters. Our value is not determined by our ethnicity, by our race, by our gender, by our age, by our ability, by our background, but by the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. So God created mankind in his own image, body and soul together. I want to pause just for a moment and talk about our human bodies. Have you recently praised God for your body? Hold on, just hold on there for a sec. How amazing your body is. When one single sperm unites with one single egg and conception begins and a single cell is produced, that single cell divides and divides and divides to the point where as adults, the average human adult has 70 trillion cells, 93,000 miles of blood vessels, 206 bones, 600 muscles, 78 organs, five of which 
we consider as vital to, to, to life. The heart, the brain, the kidney, the liver, the lungs. Our bodies point to a God who is amazing. The complexity of our bodies point to a God who is amazing. I know for myself, when some celebrity, sorry, I shouldn't pick on celebrities, um, some musician, I shouldn't pick on musicians, somebody says, oh, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. Apart from the moral argument for God and the ontological argument for God and the cosmological argument for God, which says that everything in existence has a cause. We know our universe came into existence. What's the cause? We know our bodies came into existence. What's the cause? And in the atheist argument, you can't answer that because something doesn't come from nothing. Apart from the cosmological argument is the teleological argument. I'm an atheist. Could you explain to me not the two million working parts you have in your eye? There's nothing, and we can't understand the concept of nothingness, nothingness, and all of a sudden, apart from living in a life-permitting universe, and we're going around the sun, and, and you know that story, but, but here we are, and I have an eye that has two million working parts, and that just happened by chance? But apart from that, and my brain, and my liver, and all of that, could you explain to me the single cell? We've got about 73 trillion cells. Could you explain the single cell? The single cell is far more complex than we know. In fact, and I've said this before, science, as we advance in our scientific tools, we, we're learning more and more of just how complex our world is, our universe, but how complex we are, how complex a single cell is. That we're discovering that a single cell is far more intricate in its systems and its structures than we ever thought. And it's growing to the point where you will have many scientists who say that our single cell is ordered in such a way that defies natural explanation. Single cell, profound, it points to a creator, but it points to a creator who made us in his image, body and soul. So to answer the question, who are we? We are creatures made in the image of God. And because of that, because of the Imago Dei, your life, which includes your body, matters to God. And every life matters to God, including the unborn. When we read in Scripture, God not only values life outside the womb, but life in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah, God says this to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When does life begin? We would say at conception. There's others who would say, no, at birth. Actually, life begins before conception. You didn't fill out a questionnaire. I'm going to be born here at this time, this gender, all of that. None, none of that. It's all in 
the eternal plan of God. He willed you into existence. Jeremiah, before you were born, I had plans for you. While you were in the womb, I had plans for you. In utero, notice this, in utero was a person, not a lump of clay, not a piece of matter, but a real person. Jeremiah, I was working in the womb. Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah 49. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. David in Psalm 22, verse 10, from birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. And then David again in Psalm 139, a very familiar passage, for you created my inmost being, my inner parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In utero, God is at work. God tells us in his word, or he uses many metaphors to describe how he relates to us. He's the father, we're the child. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the potter, and we're the clay. And God, in your mother's um, womb, was shaping you into the person that you were to be. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That single cell that was you at conception, that's unbelievable. Now, just want to pause for a moment. This is a six-week series, so hang in there. How many of you... I'm not real crazy about my body. There's a doctrine of creation, fearfully and wonderfully made, but there's also the doctrine of the fall. And because of the fall, which has affected our bodies as well, we're not who we are created to be. We're still made in his image, but that image is marred. It's kind of like uh, looking at the Mona Lisa, right? You see the, this wonderful piece of art, and some child takes a marker and scribbles the black, you know, on it. You can still see the portrait behind it. But one day, one day, that marring is going to be removed. One day, you're not going to escape from your body. Your body's going to be redeemed. There's coming a day for all eternity where you will have a glorified, resurrected body, and you won't have any body images. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And it started with a single cell. In today's culture, myself, as I hold that view, I'm often cast as a person that is dangerous. That's your religious view about life beginning at conception. What we need to understand is it's not simply a religious view or not just a religious view. It's a scientific view. University of Chicago in 2018 had a massive study and they had 5,502 biologists. So biologists, please tell us when life begins. 5,502 biologists from over 1,000 academic institutions and uh, those biologists, some identified as pro-choice, some pro-life, some liberal, very liberal, some very conservative, all across the spectrum. And 95% of them said that life begins at conception. Why isn't that in the news? 
Why are we hearing that? Life begins at conception. In the United States, the Roe v. Wade decision was struck down, and uh, the Supreme Court was wrestling with that question. When does life begin? It's not just a moral question or a biological question, it's a legal question. When is there life, and that life is to be protected? And we would say, as followers of Jesus, life is to be protected from conception in the womb. By eight weeks, here's some, just some notes about the baby in the womb, and many of you, I'm sure, know this. Baby in the womb at eight weeks, and some of this is before. A baby can suck his or her thumb, recoils from pricking, so it responds to touch, responds to sound, has all their organs present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, and the kidneys are cleaning fluids. Some of those things happen earlier than eight weeks. So in the first trimester, we would hold, there's a person there. Landrum Shettles, who um, performed and achieved the first in vitro fertilization, said this, Zygote is a term for a newly conceived life after the sperm and the egg cell meet, but before the embryo begins to divide. The zygote is human life. There is one fact that no one can deny. Human beings begin at conception. And again, as we increase in our scientific tools, DNA, genetics, science, it's too strong to deny the fact that human life doesn't begin at conception that we can see through a sonogram, an ultrasound image, a baby sucking his thumb, a baby kicking his or her feet. That's a person in there. So that leads to the next question. Why aren't babies in the womb protected? Why is it, and in Canada, this is 1988, we have no abortion rights laws. Why aren't those babies protected? We can see from images that's a human being in there. They can feel heartbeat. Why? There's something called the concept of personhood, which basically says you have to earn the right to become a person. So there are some who can, will say, many actually, in, in the, that would say, okay, that's a human being. There's something in there, but is that something in there viable? Is it really a person that should have rights and protection? And this poses a problem then if I hold to the the concept of personhood. Because it used to be a human being had rights due to biology. Now, Whoever's in power gets to determine when that person has rights, when that human being becomes a person. And so some people will say, oh, it's 28 weeks, some it's 24, now it's down to 22, some say earlier than that. And the problem with that, it's so arbitrary and subjective. Like when in that process does that human being actually become a person? Well, it's just whoever has the power can decide that. 
interesting, in the United States, in Massachusetts right now, um, there's a court case to do with personhood being extended to a baby. A mother was carrying her baby, her boyfriend killed her, and uh, she, the boyfriend didn't kill the baby directly, but killed the mom. A blood supply was cut off, the baby died. And so that whole thing, they're wrestling with it. In Indiana, similar case, uh, uh, a boyfriend killed the mom, and he got 55 years for killing the mom and 10 for killing the unborn child. When does this human being become a person? God says, at conception. What about then women's rights? One celebrity said, abortion is not simply a woman's right issue, it's a human right issue. As followers of Jesus, he created women, he elevated women, value and dignity of women as well as men, it all traces back to him, to the image of God. Again, in a secular worldview which divides body and soul, right, there's no equality, no value. Jesus valued women. He lifted them up. We as followers of Jesus are all for women. We're all for women to have the right to make choices and freedoms. That's their right. But when a woman's right injures or comes upon another person's right, then her right should stop. When a woman terminates her pregnancy, that's that right of hers, it's also affecting another person. It's not just what she's doing to her body, it's what she's doing to another body. And the baby in the womb is not the mother's body. The baby in the womb is another distinct body. It has its own DNA, its own blood type. It's a real body. So we're all for women's rights, but not at the expense of an unborn baby. That simply is a redistribution of oppression. What about other issues as well? What about if we have abortion, if we have laws against abortion, then there won't be safe abortions? Uh, what about foster care? These unwanted children, what about foster care is not real good? What, according to some people, uh, what about um, capital punishment. What about the climate? If you really cared about people, you'd care about capital punishment. You care about the climate. You, you wouldn't be just a pro-life person. You'd be a whole life person. What about all of that? Yes, those are issues and conversations. But what's the key issue? If this goes back to Aristotle, he practiced this. When it comes to complex ethical situations. There's something called first principles. And a first principle is a foundational proposition that stands alone apart from everything else. And in this complex ethical situation, because abortion is complex, real people in real circumstances, it's a, it's a real tough thing. The first principles is that there is a human life that is entitled to protection. And so let's talk about these other things, but let's keep this conversation separate from it. God created us, body and soul, in his image. And every life, every body matters 
to him. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, we read this. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That your body is designed by the Lord. Your body was created so that you, body and soul, can bring glory to God. So you are to steward your body for his glory. But notice too, the Lord is for the body. That your body wasn't simply made by God, but your body matters to God. In fact, his eternal plan involves a new body for you. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit floating around. You will be soul and body united in a new body. So Woodside, as we close our first message, this is a reminder that we are to be a people of grace. And this is to be a place of grace. That when we talk with people that have different views on our bodies, whatever it may be, we lead with grace and we speak the truth. We lead with grace and we speak the truth. Parents, with your children, they are to be seekers of truth. You're to be teaching them. Can I encourage you to go out and buy a book on the marvels of the human body and teach your child how special they are, how special everyone is, that they can grow up with a high view of the body, a high view of us as human beings. We're pro-people. We're pro-life. So Woodside, let us be a people of grace and let this be a place of grace. And if you're here today, I want to talk just for a moment to those of you. If you're here today and you're contemplating an abortion, we're asking you to consider that you would choose life. And you will be blessed if you do. And there is help available. There really is. And if you're here and you've been affected by an abortion or abortions, you're a woman or even a man, and you've had an abortion in your story, I want to share with you, I want to remind you that God is a God of grace. When Jesus who took upon himself, the Son of God, a human body and sacrificed his body on a cross for us. He died not only to forgive us of all our sins and to free us from our sins, as far as the east is from the west, so far your sins have been removed from you. So all your sins are forgiven, past, present, future, freely, fully, forever, all your sins are taken care of. He died as well to free you from guilt and shame. That as followers of Jesus, his will is not that we carry around guilt and shame. And maybe there's someone here that you've got that inner shame and you've been pushing it down and it lingers or there's guilt. God wants you. He wants to free you from that. He's inviting you. Give that to me. I'm a God who forgives. Just another note too. What about the baby that's been aborted? What about miscarriages? What happens to all those human beings? 
The Bible doesn't directly speak to that issue or that question, but I get this as well as many others from 2 Samuel 12 where David um, has a, a child and he pleads for the child, he, he weeps for the child or he fasts for the child that the child would live, but God in his plan, the child dies. And David says, I will go to be with him and he will not return to me. And we believe when he said, I will go to be with him, it wasn't simply referring to the grave, but David believed in God and heaven that he would go to be with the child in heaven. And then if we want to have the conversation, well, what's so wrong with abortion? All the children are going to heaven. That's what you believe. Life is God's prerogative, and every life is special. If you've had an abortion or abortions, God forgives you, and he wants to free you from any guilt or shame. Would you today hear his word and receive it and believe it? For those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no judgment, no condemnation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him.